Well, good morning. So I don't know about you, but once Thanksgiving comes around, I want to watch some Christmas movies. I know that for some of you who shall remain nameless, it begins around about Labor Day, I think. Uh, but for me, it's Thanksgiving, and it usually begins uh, with a Thanksgiving movie. I have to start each year with the same movie, which is, of course, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Fantastic Thanksgiving movie. And then we'll move on to some other ones like Christmas Vacation and Home Alone. And as my wife will confirm, I don't make it to the end of many of those movies because I'm often asleep by the end. <laughs> but I love to at least watch the first half of those movies. And it just keeps on going from there. One of the classic Christmas movies I'll often watch is A Christmas Story. Uh, you probably know that one, a film about little Ralphie Parker, a boy who wants just one thing for Christmas. Anyone know what that is? No, it's two front teeth. No, that's a good guess, though. What was it again? Thank you. Red Ryber Carbon Action 200-shot range model air rifle, right? I mean, what kid doesn't want one of those, right? So Ralphie's desires, though, constantly are rejected by his mother. Fancy that. And then even his teacher, Miss Shields, and then even Santa Claus himself, who he meets, rejects that, all giving him the same warning, which is... Thank you. It's like an American liturgy, right? And yet, Ralph never gives up hoping, does he? He waits, and he waits, and he waits, and here's a spoiler alert for none of you. His persistence is eventually rewarded with the toy of his dreams, which, of course, he immediately then shoots his eye out with, right? <laughs> now, who can't relate to Ralphie, though? You know, just a few weeks ago, one of my kids, who shall remain nameless, began the annual countdown to Christmas, asking me, how many more days are there until Christmas, Daddy? And as I did the math, I realized it was still 45 days to go. This child still had a long time to wait. But if we're honest, you know, when we were all kids, we couldn't wait for Christmas to come, right? It was the thing we waited for all year long. We longed for that day, impatiently counting down the days, excited about the possibility of what presents we might get, that, that brand new bike or those Legos or that doll or perhaps the train track or the video game con console or maybe some clothes. Or, of course, as we got a little bit older, a little bit more mercenary, that cold, hard cash, right, <laughs> to spend ourselves. But as we grow older, it's not Christmas we long for the most, is it? We begin to impatiently long for other things. And often they're actually not happy things, are they? We might long for great big sports events, things like that, but a lot of the things aren't very happy. They're actually difficult things. We long, don't we, to find a new job, perhaps. Maybe we, we're waiting to be rid of some overwhelming debt we're dealing with, or we're waiting for a loved one to come home who hasn't been home in years. Maybe we're waiting to be forgiven by someone. Maybe we're waiting to become pregnant, or perhaps we're waiting for a marriage to turn around, or we're waiting to be healed from some disease we've had for so long. Maybe we're waiting to find the one that we'll spend the rest of our lives with, or we're waiting to fulfill a dream we've had, or a calling from God, and the list goes on and on, doesn't it? Well, as we continue our sermon series called His Story today, it's appropriate that we are in the season of Advent, as we just heard about. It's a season all about waiting season about waiting, because the Israelites have been waiting. They have been waiting a long time for God to speak, for someone as well to come and to rescue them. And not just for, they've not just been waiting for a week or a month or a few years. They have been waiting for centuries, centuries. And today we're going to look at a part of his story through the story of one very unique person and his family, a family who knew all about waiting and who saw one encounter change not only their world, but change the whole of the world forever. 
So let's turn to our gospel reading for today and see what God would say to us through his word. You can either follow along in your Bible if you have one or on the screens or on the handout that you got on the way in or pull out your phones and use your Bible app. But I encourage you to follow along. So we begin in verses 5 through 7 where we read this. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. We can spend an hour just dissecting this very few verses, but this reading is remarkable because this seems to be the first time that God has spoken to his people in 400 years. 400 years. Think back how long ago 400 years ago for us would be. That would basically be when the first people were coming over from England on the Mayflower, pretty much. That's how long it's been since God has spoken. And these are the first words in the New Testament Gospel of Luke. And, the, and, and we heard the last words. We didn't hear quite the last words, but the last words were the Old Testament. And they came from, uh, in the Old Testament, came from a prophet called Malachi. And at the time of Malachi, about 430 years before Christ, the Jews had recently returned from exile in Babylon. Remember that last week we talked about Ezra, um, we talked about him, and we've also spent some time talking about their exile and judgment in our series. Well, they've just returned. And while the Persian Empire still rules Israel, um, the Jerusalem city walls and temple have actually been rebuilt. It's not as grand as Solomon's temple was, but it's been rebuilt and there must have been some comfort in that. And both the law and the priesthood of Aaron's line have been restored as well. And the Jews have actually given up their worship of idols during Malachi's time. However, things are once again beginning to go wrong. We see that the Jewish men are mistreating their wives. We also see that they're marrying pagans. So there's intermarriage going on, something God's not in favor of. And they're not tithing to God. They're not giving generously of what he's given to them. And we also see, even worse perhaps, is that the priests are neglecting the temple and they're not teaching people the law of God in all its fullness. So in short, we could say the Jews, once again, are not honoring God. It's a time where they're not honoring him. And so while for over 500 years prior to Malachi, God's continually raising up prophets, they're speaking all the time. We've covered that in some, in some depth in the last few weeks. We then have silence. Silence is awkward, isn't it? Think how awkward it was just then. <laughs> but how, think how awkward it is for them. Even the briefest of silence isn't comfortable. The Jews must have wondered, what is God doing? What is he doing? Where is God in the midst of our occupation by the Romans? And not just the Romans, but all those who've occupied us before, like people like the Greeks and the Syrians and the Egyptians. When is this prophesied Messiah that Isaiah speaks of going to come? When's he going to return and rescue us and set us free? It must have been a dark and difficult time as the Israelites waited and they waited and they waited, praying, hoping, but hearing nothing. And now Luke, the disciple of Jesus, introduces us to Zechariah. And Zechariah is just an ordinary country priest, a bit like a guy being a priest on Daniel Island, right? No, nothing great about that in particular, right? <laughs> He's one of about 8,000 priests who are living in Israel at the time. 
And these 8,000 priests, they're subdivided into 24 divisions of 300 priests. And these groups of priests all take turns, two weeks each year, 300 of them will go and they'll serve in the temple. And they will draw lots to see who'll serve each day. And they'll have 56 priests who'll be chosen by lot each day. So they each get their turn. And now comes the turn of a man called Zechariah, a man who happens to be married to a woman called Elizabeth, who happens to be the cousin of someone you may know called Mary, right? And interestingly, don't miss this, the name Zechariah means the Lord has remembered. And the name of his wife Elizabeth means oath of God. And when you put these two together, you get the Lord has remembered his promise. The Lord has remembered his promise. Don't forget that. I don't think that's a coincidence. Well, moving on in verse 6, we see that Zechariah and Elizabeth are described as righteous before God. It kind of rings in my mind when we all way back, when we looked at Noah, right? He was a man who was righteous in the eyes of the Lord. Well, they are righteous in the eyes of the Lord as well. And in other words, it means they are just beautiful in God's sight. They're beautiful in his sight because they're people who are seeking to live his way. They're trying to follow him, trying to conform to his law. But even as they do this, they also live with great sorrow. You see, the couple haven't been able to have any children. And as any of you who've suffered the pain of being unable to have children know, this is incredibly hard to live with. It must have cast an enormous shadow over them at, uh, and in their home. And barrenness, you know, was perhaps even harder to live with back then in Jewish times, in Jewish culture, than it is today. As one commentator writes, in any culture, infertility is an aching disappointment, and for some, an almost unbearable stress. But the burden cannot be compared to that borne by childless women in ancient Hebrew culture, because barrenness was considered a disgrace, even a punishment. It carried a moral stigma because in Jewish thinking, it was not the fate of the righteous. So Elizabeth had undoubtedly suffered smug reproach from others. And now, as the text says in verse 7, these two are advanced in years. They're getting old. Yes, they'd waited their whole lives, and now there is no natural hope of having a child. But this is all about to change, isn't it? In a coincidence of God-sized proportions, Zechariah is chosen by Lot to burn incense. He's going to get to go into the Holy of Holies. He's going to get to do that, one of the most incredible things, and to do this. And this, this honor of offering incense was the grandest event in all of earthly existence, at least in his eyes. And many priests never got the privilege. Plus, no priest was allowed to offer it more than once in their lifetime. And so Zechariah goes into this holy place, and this is without doubt the greatest moment of his life. Think about your bucket list. Some of the things you haven't achieved yet, maybe there's something right up there at the top. And you know that when you do that one thing, it is going to be the greatest moment in your life. You know, I think about when I first walk out on Lambeau Field, it's going to be amazing, right? <laughs> but this doesn't even compare to walking out on Lambeau Field. This is like six notches higher, okay? Well, something happens that makes it even greater, doesn't it? <laughs> he thought it couldn't be any better than that. He encounters an angel of the Lord, Gabriel. 
And like most people, in fact, all people, it seems to me, who encounter an angel in scripture, he's terrified. Right? He's scared. But in verses 13 through 17, the angel says to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son and you shall call his name John and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Hearing this, it's interesting to look back at God's last words before the 400 years of great silence. Maybe you've read them before, but if you haven't, they come in the book of Malachi. And they're these. Listen to what he says. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. You see, God's keeping his promise. He's keeping his promise. He has remembered the promise he made to his people. He's advancing his story. He's carrying out his rescue plan that continues on and on. And he's heard the prayers of his people, Israel, including Zechariah. And he's doing what he would said he would do, which is raise up a new prophet, a new Elijah. And you remember the old one, he had the power where he was able to defeat 850 prophets of Baal and Asherah. We covered that about a month or so ago. But this guy's going to be even more powerful. He's going to be filled before, even before birth, with the power of the Holy Spirit. And he will prepare the way for Messiah to come and set his people free. And of course, it's John the Baptist. And it's incredible news, but perhaps just as incredible to Zechariah is the fact that he's about to be a dad. <laughs> you imagine that? He's going to have a son. He's going to be a dad. God has heard his prayers He's heard his wife's prayers, and through a miracle of Abrahamic-sized proportion, they're going to have a child. Can you imagine how he must have felt in that moment? I mean, excitement, right? Joy, just anticipation, hope. But of course, reality quickly sets in, and in the midst of this supernatural event, he has his doubts. And so he questions that God can or will do this. Verse 18, do you see that? And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And so the angel, perhaps in exasperation, reminds him, this is good news. And then he gives him exactly what he wants. He gives him a sign. Maybe not the sign he's wanting. It's kind of part rebuke, part blessing. And the angel says to him, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak. His wife's pretty happy about this son, I think, <laughs> until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Zechariah is given this incredible news, and yet, because of his unbelief, he gets a very fitting consequence in that he isn't going to be able to share it, at least not with his lips. He's going to have to go outside and try kind of a charades game, right, and explain, well, there was this big angel, you know, and I'm going to have a son, and I can't speak, you know, and so on. I have to try and do that. And of course, people are outside right now, and guess what they're doing? They're waiting. They're waiting too. They're wondering, what's going on in there? Why has he taken so long in there? They're probably starting to get a little bit worried. See, verse 21, and the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And finally, Zechariah comes out, and he tries to explain what's happened. But of course, you know, mm, he can't speak, right? And they understand he's had some kind of vision, we're not sure if they fully understand him, though. And after all, who would believe him? 
that he's heard from the Lord. It's been 400 years. Why would he have heard from the Lord of all people? And we also don't know what Elizabeth makes of all this, but we do know that very soon she's pregnant. Verses 24 and 25. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Like Rachel, the mother of Joseph, like Hannah, the mother of Samuel, and countless women since, the Lord removes her barrenness, and there is incredible joy. He's taken away her sorrow. He's turned her mourning into dancing. And whilst, yes, she does have to wait for him to be born, it isn't long until others are rejoicing with her. Verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, no. He shall be called John, which means God's graciousness. God's grace in action is happening through John the Baptist. It's an incredible start to the Christmas story, isn't it? But it's a very fitting start for what's to follow. The great science is over. The waiting's almost done. The child will grow up to be the one who prepares the way for his cousin, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, to bring salvation to the world. He's going to continue God's rescue plan for all of mankind. His plan to save us from ourselves, to save us from our sin, to save us from death. It's all happening. But today I wonder, what about you? What are you waiting for? What promise are you hoping that God will fulfill? What have you cried out to him for over and over again? Maybe you're lost in your sin, having chosen your own way for your whole life, maybe five years, maybe 10 years, maybe 50 years, and you're desperately waiting for a way out. Help me. Well, the Christmas story reveals that the way out has been made possible. We read in the book of Galatians, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. We simply need to surrender to God and say, God, I give you control. I repent. I choose to follow you and to seek your glory, not my own. Or maybe you're waiting for healing for yourself or for a loved one. There seems to be great silence from God. Why, God? But you see, God has spoken. He says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways. And you're a good company with men like Jesus and the Apostle Paul, whose prayers aren't answered as they hope for. Jesus' cup of suffering is not removed from him on Good Friday. And Paul's affliction, which is actually used by God to reveal his power in Paul's weakness, God's power is shown. Or maybe you're waiting to fulfill a calling that the Lord has put in your heart. And you're wondering when you're going to get the chance to pursue this calling that you have. You know, you join the company of people that we've been talking about for this whole series. People like Moses, who spent 40 years in the desert as a shepherd before he got to lead the people of Israel out of slavery into, or almost into, the promised land. And then, of course, Jesus. You know, it's 30 years until he begins to live out his calling. In Jeremiah 29, God says this, For I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. 
Or maybe you're waiting for God to intervene in some dark place or some difficult situation in your life. And you're tired and you're burnt out. You're worn out by the stress of dealing with this situation. But his word says this. They who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. Brothers and sisters, whatever you are waiting for, however large or however small, know that God hears your prayers. This is the testimony of God's people throughout scripture and throughout all of history. And as we see today, and we'll see over the next few weeks, this is revealed through the Christmas story. And so we wait on the Lord with rightful hope and we trust in him and his plans rather than seeking to try and control the uncontrollable because his love for us is greater than we can ever imagine and he always keeps his promises. We may not know why he isn't answering our prayers as we want him to, but we can have full assurance that he has our best interests at heart, knowing that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And the really good news for those of us who put our trust in him is that one day he's going to return and put all things right. In this season of Advent, this season of waiting that we've been talking about, we're reminded that he hasn't abandoned us. He's coming back. There will be a second coming. After 2,000 years of waiting, though, it might seem hard to believe that. Now, it reminds me of a joke that I'm hesitant to share because I shared at the last service and it totally bombed. <laughs> a guy walked out after he says, you're going to have to explain that joke to me sometime later. I said, okay, but I'm going to risk it. Here we go. So some aliens arrive on Earth, and they, they send delegations from different countries, politicians, religious leaders, and they gather around and they ask the newcomers about their lives. And when the pope come, a pope's turn comes to ask the aliens, he says this, do you know about our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ? Oh, Jesus, the aliens reply, because they can speak English. Of course we know him. He visits us every year to make sure we're okay. Now, the Pope's a little bit surprised, and so he exclaims, every year? We've been waiting 2,000 years for his second coming. Well, the newcomer sees the Pope's beginning to get angry, and he tries to calm him down. And they say, well, maybe he likes our chocolates more than he likes yours. And the Pope's a little puzzled, and he says, chocolate? What does that have to do with it? Well, yes, chocolate, said the alien. When he first visited our planet, we gave him a really nice box of chocolates. What did you do? <laughs> Thank you, Ed. Ed got it. He said it twice, though. <laughs> All right, sorry. Well, the good news is that God doesn't hold grudges. And the cross that we nailed him to was a part of his rescue plan. It's the central part of his story. Because of his incredible love for us, he bore the full weight of our sin at Calvary. And if we will repent and believe in him, then we'll experience his grace and the complete freedom his second coming will one day bring. The waiting will be over. And as C.S. Lewis puts it, the real story will begin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there are many people in this room waiting. They're waiting, Lord. They're waiting to hear from you. People who've been waiting all their lives to try and figure out, are you real? Are you true? Are you trustworthy? Can I put my trust in you for the rest of my life? Can I give you my life, my heart? Lord, would you help 
those people to repent and turn to you today and trust you, hearing that you are faithful. There are others who are waiting in pain and suffering, longing to get an answer from you, Lord Jesus, longing for healing, longing for an end to some brokenness, Lord. Would you restore them? And as you do that, Lord, would you give them patience, give them your strength to be able to see what it is you, you are doing in the midst of that, even as they may not get the answer they want, Lord God. Jesus, help us to be a people who wait well, trusting in you each and every day, each and every week, year, decade, Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.